seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, as we do every week, for your word. We thank you that it speaks for itself. Um, that we don't have to make it say something or change it or twist it in any way, but that it says what it says, and that is what you want us to hear. And I pray that this morning I would just simply serve as a filter for that, that you would uh, empower me to speak only your words, that you would move me aside as a, as a sinful man that I am, and that you would allow me to speak uh, what your word actually says. Uh, I pray for the hearers in this room this morning, that they would have open ears and open hearts, that you would come into this place and move Uh, and soften their hearts to hear the gospel, whether they are saved or unsaved, and that you would do a mighty work in this place. Again, we thank you so much for who you are, and we truly do stand amazed this morning uh, that you have allowed us to be here to worship you. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. All right, so as always uh, at Mission Church, you're probably used to this by now, we're going to look back for just a short time before we move forward. Okay, so a couple weeks ago, uh, we saw that John the Baptist was baptizing people out in the wilderness, right? Jesus came to him and said, hey, will you baptize me? John was like, whoa, 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 you're Jesus. You're the Messiah. You're the one I'm telling all of these people about and baptizing them in your name. Of course, I will not baptize you. Jesus said, yes, Jesus always gets his way. So therefore, John baptized him. As Jesus is coming up out of the water, We see the story of God parting the heavens and looking down and saying to Jesus and to anyone else that was in within earshot of God's voice there, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now this was a well-timed reminder to Jesus as he was immediately led by the Spirit out into the desert to be tempted by Satan himself. Last week we looked at the specifics of those temptations and how Satan was simply trying to take the place of father in Jesus' life. Um, and that how Jesus withstood those things um, unlike our first father, Adam. Now we also got to see that Matthew was not necessarily just giving us a blueprint or a guideline or a how-to guide of how to withstand the wiles of the devil, but that he was pointing to the fact that Jesus already had been obedient for us. He had already defeated Satan. This wasn't just a guide of how we can do it because we don't have to defeat Satan. We rest in Jesus who already has. It is his obedience that we have hope in. It is his perfection that we have salvation in. So then, this week, we will move into the beginning of his earthly ministry. Now, Uh, Just out of transparency, I'm going to be completely honest with you here. Uh, I was super excited to preach last week. For one, I love preaching. For two, I had had good advance notice because I knew they were going to Haiti, all of those things. Uh, For three, I've taught the Temptation of Jesus Bible study three or four times, so I had a head start in my notes. I already had kind of a few things here, a few things there. I had to lengthen a few things, add to, tweak, all of these things. And then... Haiti time struck, and I did not have as much advance notice. I did not know I was preaching this Sunday. And to be quite honest, um, the big thrust of this section of Scripture, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, we just heard three weeks ago from Pastor Eric because John the Baptist was speaking those same exact words, right? So I didn't want to just, I almost just wrote down what he said and just repeated it because who knows if y'all would remember that or not. But then I thought better of it. So I... Just to be honest, um, really struggled this week with what to say. Um, However, at the end of it all, 
Um, I actually feel really good about what the Holy Spirit is saying. Please don't hear that as patting me on the back. I had nothing. <laughs> I looked, I, I told somebody this morning, I went to prepare my sermon on Thursday night and I stared at the computer screen for 45 minutes and didn't type a letter, didn't read a word. I, I just zoned out thinking, what am I going to say this Sunday? And as always, God comes through in the clutch. So um, we have a lot to get to today and I'm gonna be honest with you for the first half or whatever portion, this is gonna feel like a Bible study. I want you to get your Bibles ready, your devices ready, whatever you use to read Scripture, because we're going to be flipping quite a few places, and I'm going to ask you to flip with me and read along with me so that you can see the words that I'm saying as well. So it is going to be, I even have little tabs on my Bible because I don't want to be the guy up here like, where is it? I don't know. Does Ezekiel come after it? I don't know. So um, we're going to be going through a lot of Scripture uh, as we move through this today, so I'm just warning you, but we're not there yet. So first we'll look at what it says in Matthew. It seems here that Jesus stuck around in Judea for some time. It is an unknown amount of time. We don't know how long that was, weeks, months. We, we have no idea. However, if you take the Gospel of John and read it and piece the story together by using both of them, they're not different stories, they're just different angles of the same story, then you can see that after Jesus' temptation, that he calls his first disciples, he goes to the wedding feast at Cana and turns water into wine, um, and then the arrest of John the Baptist happens. And that's where we pick up in Matthew. Again, I do want to point out that between 11 and 12 here in Matthew, some, some things have happened. There's been some time. Last week, it looked like it was pretty much immediate. Baptism straight to temptation. This week, it seems some time has passed because if you look ahead into the chapter, 14th chapter of Matthew, we see how that story ends. We see John the Baptist is arrested. We see the full story. Uh, we see basically John is arrested for speaking the same words we looked at a few weeks ago. He goes to Herod who has taken a wife that was not his. It was his brother's. He has taken this wife. John is saying you should not do that. Repent. Turn away from that sin. Turn towards God. Don't do those things. Do these things. Herod did not like that too much. He liked his wife, wife, wives, however many he had. So he didn't like John telling him that he had to change. So he had him arrested. Now he wanted to kill him, but he was scared of the mob that was kind of following John. So from that we can see that at John's arrest, word is spreading, right? People are following John's message of repent, following John's message of the Messiah is here. Here he is, look to Jesus. So we know the word is spreading, but then... Lo and behold, a young girl comes in and dances. I don't know how good this dance had to have been, but she dances for Herod and he offers her anything she wants up to half of his kingdom. It must have been a great dance. I don't know, but by prompt, the prompting of her mother, she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. He can't go back on his word. Long story short, he gives it to her. John's head on a platter. So he is beheaded for basically preaching the message that we see here at, in his ministry and at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and really through the entirety of Scripture, which is what we will look at today. In chapter 3, we see John the Baptist preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the very same message that we will see Jesus pick up here in just a few moments. But at this point in Matthew, he has only been arrested. And this meant that the movement was spreading. This meant that the message that he was preaching clearly was not popular or he wouldn't have been arrested for it. So Jesus withdrew to Galilee. It says there in verse 12 that he withdrew to Galilee. Now at first glance it may look like, oh, people are getting arrested for this. 
not me, but I don't want this to be read that he is scared. We see that we will see as we look through prophecies that there is a reason for this. So it is not that he is scared, but he withdraws to Galilee. And I think this was simply Jesus' cue that it was his time to start his ministry. John the Baptist's ministry had ended. He is arrested. We know later that he never gets back out of jail to, to preach his message. I'm sure he was preaching it in jail, but he is never released to be a free man to preach this message again. And Jesus knows that it is his time to take up this ministry and to start his earthly ministry. Think of it kind of as a passing of the torch. John's time to make way for Jesus and his kingdom had come to an end. And we see this paralleled in Deuteronomy 34. So that's the first place I'm going to have you guys turn. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 177. So Deuteronomy 34. And we see there the heading, the death of Moses. Okay? So through, through Scripture before this point, we've seen Moses do some great things. The Ten Commandments, the burning bush. We've seen uh, all the Charlton Heston things that you saw him do in the movie, right? All of those things have already happened. And this is coming to the end of his life. And we see there the account of his death in verses 7 through 9. It says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. First of all, that is an incredibly encouraging verse that you should probably highlight. As you grow older, a lot of people will say, well, your passion goes down, your, your, your vigor goes down, whatever um, you do now, you won't do as much of then. And I want to look to Moses and see he lived 120 years and he still had the same passion for God that he did at a very young age and it never went away. So first of all, that's extremely encouraging, but that's free and a side note. The people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, if you turn one page over, we're not going to read it, but the next book of the Bible is entitled Joshua. So from that point on, we see a very short account of this great man of God, Moses, who's done great and mighty things, right? He has led the people out of Egypt. He has done some some of the biggest and best stories of the Bible involve Moses. And he basically gets two verses. Moses dies, Joshua takes up the ministry, right? And you see, it is God's way of doing things that when one ministry ends, it is left in the hands of the next man up, and the next man up, and the next man up. Because it is about Jesus. It is not about Moses. We see in Acts 14, we're not going to turn there either, but an account in Acts 14, of Paul and Barnabas healing a crippled man. So they, a man is crippled, he cannot walk. Paul and Barnabas heal him, he gets up and he can walk. And the people rush in and see what is going on and they want to worship them as gods, right? And Paul stops them and he tells them, hey, we're only men here, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Don't worship us, worship the God that did this through us. We bring you good news about God's salvation. And then he says that in the former times, meaning times past, Old Testament times, he allowed people to walk in their own ways. But in verse 17, he says, but he did not leave himself without a witness. This is very key here. Paul is saying that 
there has always been someone proclaiming this message. There will always be someone proclaiming this message. And even if you look around and you feel like you're the only one proclaiming it, someone is proclaiming this message. Isaiah calls it the remnant of God's people. If you read the book of Isaiah, which we will look at quite a bit today, the book of Isaiah, he gets pretty woe is me. I'm the only Christian left. There's nobody left to preach. Why have you done this to me, God? Why am I the only one? And God says, oh, no, no, no. There are other people. Maybe you don't know them, but there are other people preaching this message. Even though you can't see them, there will always be someone proclaiming the message of salvation from the Lord. And this is what we see here in Matthew. This message has been carried all the way from the beginning to John the Baptist and then John, like Moses, had come to the end of his time of being the lead witness or the one we read about. It is the end of his time, and it was his time to turn it over to the next man up. Just so happened, in his case, the next man up happened to be the actual one we have been pointing to for all of these years. So he is turning his message, his ministry, over to the one he is preaching about, to Jesus. But it is Jesus' time to carry this message, to take up his earthly ministry. That is why he withdrew to Galilee, not because he was scared to be arrested. He knew that was coming. He probably even knew kind of when that was coming, and he knew it wasn't now. So he wasn't scared, but he knew it was his time. This was not a coincidence. It was God's sovereign timing, and Jesus knew that, and we'll see that in just a few moments. We see Jesus withdraw to Galilee and then leave Nazareth, his home. He probably hadn't been very far away from his home at this point because people didn't travel as much as they do now and then Matthew throws in some seemingly extra information right he's he's talking about a, a bunch of places that don't even exist anymore um, and I probably could have looked up exactly where these things were um, and thrown a map up on the screen and told you but I didn't so um, it's leave it let, suffice it to say it's not extra and we will see why but verse 13 tells us Leaving Nazareth he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so we don't, again, we don't know exactly, as someone does, today we don't know exactly where those are, but we read that and we go, why did he even throw that in? Like, okay, so Jesus traveled around and he was doing these things. And then verse 14 tells us exactly why he threw it in. Verse 14 says, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So verse 14 tells us why Matthew threw in this information. So that we could plainly see that Jesus was once again fulfilling another prophecy. As we have said many times at Mission Church, the Jewish people were fully aware that someone was coming. They were expecting a Messiah in some form or fashion. They knew a Messiah had been promised. They knew that the, some of the prophecies applied to him and foretold what to look for. Now, they misconstrued a lot of things. They took them the wrong way. They were looking for this warrior king to come in and beat everybody's brains out and set up his own earthly kingdom. And Jesus was like, I'm, that's not how this works. That's not what I'm doing. So they were expecting a Messiah. They just weren't expecting a Messiah like Jesus. And Matthew is pointing out that Jesus is checking yet another box. This is yet another prophecy that Jesus himself fulfills. And it's a specific one spoken by the prophet Isaiah. We see in verses 15 and 16 of Matthew, it says, In the land of Zebulun and in the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So verse 15 
and 16 are reiterating the places Jesus is going so that we will see this prophecy. And the prophecy is located, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. If you're using an ESV Bible uh, that we provide here, it's page 573. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. We see in both Matthew and Isaiah this juxtaposition of light and dark, right? Dark, not good. Evil, bad, anguish, darkness. Light, good. We like light. We don't like darkness. We see this in both places, right? Now, in Isaiah, now actually, if you would read with me verses 21 and 22 in chapter 8. It says, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. None of that sounds pleasant, right? Not one <laughs> word of that sounds like, that's where I want to be. But this is a picture Isaiah is giving an account of the Israelites once again turning away from their God. Turning away from God the Father and in the ensuing wrath that God is going to pour out on them. He is telling them that the Assyrians are coming. He's telling Isaiah to tell the people, look, I'm using the Assyrians here as an object or as a people of my wrath. I'm sending them to pour out my wrath on you for turning against me yet again. And they are going to overtake you. I'm using them as my agent. And when they come, you will be in great distress and darkness. Darkness. You will be in anguish. This is not going to be pleasant for you because you deserve my wrath. You have sinned. You have turned away from me. This is a picture of God's justice, his wrath upon sin, his wrath upon sinners. And this wrath is justified. This wrath is deserved. He warned them many times. If you read through the Old Testament, you can see account after account after account of God saying, don't do that. It's not going to end well for you. Don't do that. Come back to me. Come on. Come on. And then we see here that God is saying, my justice is going to be poured out. And I want to ask everyone in here if that sounds familiar or not. Because we look back on the Israelites and call them a bunch of idiots, right? But then we look at our own life and go, oh, maybe I, maybe I should move to Israel. <laughs> maybe I should become an Israelite. Maybe I should identify more with them because I turn my back on God all the time, over and over and over again. And you see, he has promised that this would happen. He's telling them, this is going to happen. You knew it was going to happen before, but now I'm telling you it is definitely going to happen. And then chapter 9 comes in, and we almost see a change of mood immediately, right? God is saying, look, you're going to see darkness, you're going to see anguish, you're going to see death, you're going to see all of this stuff. And then chapter 9 opens with one of the greatest words in Scripture, but it is almost never inconsequential when the word but is in Scripture. B-U-T, not the other one. Such a huge word, though. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, so in a later time from now, when we're, we're reading here in Isaiah, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So the very same people that God trusted to carry his message forth and make great are the ones that have let him down again and again and again. And they deserve death. They deserve wrath. They deserve justice. And some of them will get that. But 
There will be no gloom for her who was, past tense, in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt. So he has brought wrath. He is bringing destruction. He is bringing justice into the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the latter time, again, somewhere in the future from this writing that we see here, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, Galilee of the nations. This is word for word the picture we see in Matthew. This is where Jesus is. This is where Jesus is going. He withdrew to these places. And then we see the people who walked in darkness, this is verse two in chapter nine, who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. This is a beautiful picture here of this exact prophecy being played out in Matthew when Jesus goes to these exact places. What Matthew is saying by referring to this relatively obscure passage, I doubt anyone in here woke up this morning and did a daily devotion on Isaiah chapter 9. It's a relatively obscure passage that prophesies of Jesus' coming. And he is saying that light is here. That light that is shining, that is going to shine in Isaiah is shining now and his name is Jesus. He is coming to them to remind them of the wrath that God poured out but that even in that wrath he promises grace. You were living in darkness but now the promised light has come. You were dwelling there and God brought light to you. If you look in Matthew it says they were dwelling in darkness, right? That does not have the connotation of a visit. They were living there. They were taking up residence there. They were there for the long haul. They were living in the darkness and the wrath of God because they had turned away from him. But even 700 years before Jesus would make his appearance on earth, we see God here promising grace to his people. We see God saying, even though you deserve this, you deserve nothing but death, destruction, and wrath because you've turned away from me again and again. And again, and I warned you beforehand, and you did it anyway. Even though you deserve nothing but this punishment, one day, in the latter time, sometime from now, one day I am going to show you grace. I will send you someone who can take you from this darkness to the light. And Matthew is saying, do you remember him saying that? These people would have been familiar with the Old Testament. Do you remember him saying that he was going to send someone? Do you remember him saying he is going to move you from the darkness to the light? Matthew is saying God promised this and now he has delivered on his promise. This is the time he was referring to. This is the man he was referring to. This is the person that will take you from the darkness to the light. You may be asking yourself, where else have we seen this? Turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. It's page 448 if you're using our Bibles. Psalm chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. It says, Why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We see here the nations are raging. They, they don't want to be under God's rule anymore. They want to break the cords of his rule. They want to cast away the cords from us and be under their own authority, away from God. Who's he to tell us what to do? 
They are against the Lord and his anointed, which is capitalized for a reason there in your Bible. It's capital A anointed, again pointing to Jesus. Then in verse 4 and 5, we see a God again promising wrath because of the disobedience of his people. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Even if you don't know what that word means, it's not good. Derision is not good. He holds them under contempt. He holds them punishable. Okay? Then he will speak them into his wrath, speak to them in his wrath, and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So again, he's saying, Oh, you can break the cords all you want, but there's consequences. And the consequences are my wrath being poured out on you. Then in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. We see God saying again, one day I am going to call a man. And he is going to be the sent one. He is going to be the one I am promising here. He is my son. What did we see two weeks ago? When Jesus was baptized, God looking down and saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Again, God is saying, look, this is the man. Matthew is saying, this is the man that God has promised. God fulfills this very prophecy that we will one day, that he will one day send his son. And then what do we see? Verses 11 and 12. It says, now serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. We see here God telling us, I'm going to send someone. You worship him as you worship me. You follow him as you follow me. He is me. You see him, you see me. You worship him the same way. Because if not, what does it say? He will be angry, you will perish in the way, and his wrath will be quickly kindled. God hates sin. This is a very clear message here. His wrath will be kindled against your sin. But what does the second half of verse 12 say? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We deserve for this wrath to be kindled. We deserve swift punishment. We deserve death. We deserve to be fully punished for our sins. But if we will but take refuge in this son and honor him as we would honor God, then we will have refuge. We will have grace shown upon us. We will not get what we deserve, even though we know we deserve it, we're aware that we deserve it. By following this son, by following this man that he is going to send, we will have refuge. We will be blessed in our refuge in him. You may be thinking... <laughs> I think I've heard this before. Turn with me again back. Genesis chapter 3. Very beginning of your Bible, I think it's page 2 or 3. What does it say there as the heading of Genesis chapter 3? The fall. <laughs> it's not a good time in human history. We don't look back on this time fondly. This is the account of Adam and Eve's first sin. We won't go into the debate of whether it was Adam or Eve. All the women want to say it was Adam. All the men want to say it was Eve. I'm actually on the women's side. Adam should have. Anyway, we won't go into that. But Adam and Eve's first sin, we see God catch them and expose their sin. They try to hide. They try to act like they didn't do anything wrong. They try to hide from God's knowledge. Obviously, that does not work. And what, what had he told them would happen if they broke this one single commandment? Look with me just a few paragraphs up. Genesis chapter 2, verses 17. If you eat of it in that day, you will surely die. They ate it. What do they deserve? Death. 
If God had not warned them, then maybe I could see giving a pass. Oh, you didn't know? Well, then next time, don't eat it. He told them straight out, this is what happens. You eat it, you die. One plus one equals two. They ate it. They deserve wrath. They deserve death. They deserve vengeance. And before, again, we look back on Adam and Eve as, oh, man, those idiots. All they had to do was follow one command. Again, read yourself into that story. I guarantee you I would have ate it at some point. All of us have sinned. All of us deserve this death. All of us have disobeyed God's command, and we deserve what it says in verse 17. We deserve to surely die. God curses them in chapter 3. After the fall, he gives a curse to the man. He gives a curse to the woman. But in the midst of all of those curses, he's cursing the serpent. And what does he say in verse 15? This is another promise. As he is cursing the serpent, we see God say that there is coming a day when a man will be born. He will be born of woman and he will crush you decisively. He will defeat you once and for all. He will vanquish you finally and forever. We see him saying to Satan, today's not your day, but buddy, your day's coming. And what did we see last week? Last week we saw Satan trying to derail this plan and Jesus utterly defeat him in the desert to send him packing, to send him like a puppy dog with his tail between his legs away from Jesus because he could not derail this plan. And we see it right here beginning on page three of the Bible. Basically the first story that involved humans. Everything else was God's creation, right? And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then we see man screw it up and deserve death. And then we move forward all the way to Matthew, right? And we see this man that God has promised from the beginning defeating Satan. And it is in a time when we all deserve is death, when all we deserve is wrath because of our choices, not Adam and Eve's, let's not blame them, because of our choices, we see God making an amazing promise to send his son to save us from the very sins that warrant the wrath. He sends his son. And you see, the reason we started in Matthew and we ended all the way back in Genesis is because I want to make clear to you today, I, I told you this was more like a Bible study for a little bit, is to reiterate the point that this has been the plan from the beginning. This was never plan B. Grace was not a contingency plan. Jesus was not a what-if scenario. It was a plan from the beginning. It was the one and only plan for sin from page three. Grace was not something God dreamed up when Jesus showed up on earth. How am I going to fix this problem? Hey, let's do grace. This was, this was the plan. He was going to show his glory the most by showing grace to his people, even and especially when they deserved none of it. Not one drop of grace have we ever earned. Not one drop of grace do we deserve. We receive grace not because we have earned it, but because God has chosen from the very beginning of Scripture, from the very beginning of time, and even before that, that that is how he is going to show forth his glory the most, by showing grace to a people that do not deserve it. 
And in Matthew, we see that coming to fruition in the ultimate outpouring of his grace in sending his promised son, his perfect sacrifice, the one he has promised over and over and over again from the beginning. Matthew is pointing us back to make sure we realize that this has been in place since then. God knew it was going to happen. He wasn't surprised by any of this. But God planned to send us a stand-in even before we needed the stand-in. That was his plan before we even sinned. God knew we would need this substitute, and he sent it. So we see here that grace has been the plan all along. We want grace. All of us want grace, right? We don't want justice. I hear people talking all the time, well, that's not fair. You don't want fair, brother. Fair ends in what we just discussed. Fair ends in punishment, death, wrath, justice, all of these things. That's not what you want from God. We want grace. So the logical question is, I know what I want. I know what I need. How do I get it? Luckily for us, since it has been a plan since the beginning, the instructions have, quick, have been there from the beginning. So quickly, we're going to move all the way back through Scripture to Matthew. And I know you guys are like, whoo, we're going to move much faster here. You can turn with me if you think you can keep up. I wrote these on the page, so I'm not going to be turning. I would suggest if you want to take notes at all, just write them down. So, quickly, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. It's page 364 if you're using our Bibles quickly. It says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So again, we see a people here who are deserving of wrath. They have turned away from God or they wouldn't have to turn back, right? They have turned towards their wicked ways but what must they do to receive grace in this instance? And it says it very clearly. They must humble themselves, they must pray, and they must turn from their wicked ways, and God will forgive them. He promises to do so. He says, if you do this, I will forgive your sin. I will heal your land. This is how you place yourself under the ever-running faucet of God's grace. You must humble yourself you must turn from your wicked ways. What is another word for turning from your wicked ways? Repent. Repent. We will see this over and over and over again. Moving forward again, Isaiah chapter 55. It's page 615 if you are turning there, but it's verses 6 and 7. Isaiah is once again telling the people what they must do. He is imploring them, return to the Lord. Wrath is coming. I'm, I'm I'm the voice in the wilderness at this point, Isaiah is saying, listen to me, the wrath of God is coming and you do not want it. And it's, he tells them in verse six and seven, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah is very clear here. Israel deserves wrath yet again. They are sinning. They have turned away from God and, and towards their wickedness. But he is telling them, if you will but seek the Lord, forsake your wicked ways, unrighteous men, forsake your thoughts and return to the Lord, he will have compassion on you. Another word for compassion. He will show you grace. But what does it take? Returning to the Lord. What is another word for returning to the Lord? Repent. Turn from your wicked ways and turn to the Lord. This is the only thing they must do 
but it is also the only way that they can do it. There is no other earning their way back to grace. It is only by turning to the Lord and turning away from their wicked ways. Moving forward one more time to Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 10 and 11. It's page 721 if you are turning. Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel is warning Israel again. I know this is becoming a theme. He's, God, is, God is sending people that may kill them. They are going to overtake them. They are going to attack them because they are an agent of God's wrath. And this will be the Lord sending his agents to exact upon them the wrath that they do deserve for turning away from the Lord. But he will give you a watchman who will blow the trumpet. As soon as he sees people coming, what is he going to do? Blow the trumpet. If you ignore the trumpet, that's your fault. It even says that. I'm not going to read that part. But it, it says, if you hear the trumpet, may your blood be on your own head. Because you ignored it. I told you. I warned you. I gave you a trumpet guy, trumpet player, trumpeteer, a guy to warn you. And you didn't listen. And Ezekiel was being that man here. He is warning them. And he, look what he says in verses, uh, chapter 33, verses 10 and 11. It says, Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel. So God is saying to Ezekiel, say these things. Thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How can we survive? Quick point here. They clearly knew they were doing wrong, right? They said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us. So it's not like they're oblivious. They knew they were doing wrong, and yet... What do they want? They don't want fair. They don't want justice. They don't want wrath. They want grace. And they say, how can we get it? How can we survive? God says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Again, we see a people deserving of God's wrath. We see a per people knowing they deserve God's wrath. They're asking, how do we get out of this? We know what's coming. We know God told us. He's warned us thousands of times. What's, what's coming is not good. We don't want that. How do we get out of this? How can we be shown grace even though we do not deserve it? And then we see God tell Ezekiel to basically yell at them, turn back Turn back from your evil ways and live. That's it. That's all you have to do. Just turn from your evil ways and turn back to the Lord. That's it. What's another word for that? Repent. Ezekiel is telling them even from times well before Jesus is even thought of in an earthly sense, well before people thought he was going to show up, they just knew he was coming at some time. This is years, hundreds of years before Jesus shows up on the earth and it's still the same message. Repent. Turn back to the Lord. He is saying it again and again in Scripture that we deserve wrath. We see in Romans, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is hell. The wages of sin is destruction. That is what we deserve and yet from the beginning he has promised us an escape plan. He's been telling us that someone is coming and this someone, this sent one, will save you. He will be the grace that has been my plan all along. From the beginning, we see God telling his people how to receive this grace. Turn from your evil ways. Repent. It's very simple. Repentance equals grace. I hope I've made that very clear this morning. Repentance equals receiving grace. Grace. Now turn back with me to Matthew chapter 4. I think it's page 8 something something. 
809 maybe. Yes, 809. Pastor Eric, again, like I said earlier, he preached a sermon three weeks ago saying these exact words, repent. He told us what it means to repent. If you haven't heard it or if you've forgotten it like I have, <laughs> go back and listen to it all the time because we have to repent every single day. But we saw in chapter 3, as he was preaching through that, John the Baptist was preaching repentance in the wilderness. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Now is the time to repent. You must repent. Then we see him arrested and Jesus taking up his ministry. And what does it say here in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4? From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is Jesus you would think he would have some new message, right? This is, this is the sent one. This is the promised one. Doesn't he have some better nugget than what John was already saying? What apparently all of Scripture was already saying? The answer quickly, no, he doesn't. Because that is the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is not changing. The message of the Bible is Jesus. He is preaching the very same message. Why was the kingdom of God at hand? Because the king was at hand. The promised one, the bringer of grace, the grace personified, the one who has been told from the beginning would come and deliver this grace has arrived. And when he did, what did he preach? Repent. Turn from your evil ways. Turn from this world. You must turn from your wicked ways. You must delight in me, not me, this is Jesus speaking. You must change your desires. Seek after me, seek after my kingdom first and foremost above all of these things. You must not claim to follow me and then live the exact same way that you have been living. You must change, turn and live. You must repent and truly mean it. This is the only way you receive grace. Even though it's been promised from the beginning, the method of getting it has been the same. Don't wait. Don't put it off. The king is here. The kingdom is at hand because the king has arrived. Turn to him. Look to him. Love him more than you love the world and realize that no matter how appealing this world may seem, it pales in comparison to the light of Christ. We are living in darkness when we look to the world for our satisfaction. And Christ is saying, I am the light. I am bringing you the light. Does anyone in here have a cell phone? I, I think a better question might be, does anyone in here not have a cell phone? If you want to embarrass yourself and raise your hand. Kids don't count. Any adult? Okay, I didn't think so. Ever tried to um, use your phone as a flashlight? I do that all the time. I don't want to turn the light on. I'm like, what is that in the floor? Oh, nothing? Okay. Um, where's that pen? Oh, it's over here. Why well, I need a pen in the dark, I don't know, but I'm still looking for stuff all the time with my phone. And in the dark, works pretty well, right? Ever taken your phone out on a sunny day and looked down at it and thought, is my phone broken? Because I can't see anything. And then you tilt it just the right angle. You look like a complete idiot, I promise you. But you're like this, and you turn it, and then you point it up, you do all these things, and maybe you can see a little something. Question is, is your phone emitting less light in the sun than it is in a dark room? Is it functionally changing what it's doing? To my knowledge, I don't think that it is. Okay? It's, it's sending out the same amount of light 
in a dark room or on a sunny day. But the sun is so much brighter. It's so much better light. Nobody would choose to look for something in the dark with their cell phone if they had the sun to, to light the room. And that's the difference Matthew is saying here between living in the light and the dark as it says here. When you're living in the dark, you seek to find your peace. You seek to find your refuge, your way. All of these things, all, you seek fulfillment in anything you think will help you. You look to drugs, to sex, to alcohol, to women, to men, to a job, to a promotion, to money, to power, to prestige. Literally anything you can get your hands on thinking, this is the one, this is the thing that's going to fulfill me. And then when that doesn't, you just move on to the next thing, right? This is what the world is doing. They're searching around, looking at the world with a flashlight on a cell phone. When you're in the dark, it seems bright. When you're in complete darkness, if I'm in a cave, have you ever been to the cave where they turn off all the lights? And you, you're like, if they turn the lights on again, you look like an idiot. You put your hand, you can't see anything. But a guy pulls out a lighter and it's like, whoa, that is a lot. When you're in the dark, a cell phone seems like a great source of light. But when you step into the light, the true light of the sun, your cell phone seems awfully dim. A lighter seems awfully dim. A small light seems awfully dim. When you compare this world to the true light of Jesus, it is so unfulfilling. You see it for what it truly is, and it is a poor excuse for a Savior. It is a poor excuse for hope and a poor excuse for light. You see, those things that you're grasping for to fulfill you are really, really dim when you compare them to Jesus. And this is what Jesus wants us to realize. We are those people dwelling, not hanging out for a short time. We are dwelling in the darkness when we turn away from him. We are in the shadow of death, as it says here. But he is the light, the true source of light. And he is imploring us to turn from our wicked ways and to turn back to him. To turn away from the world that only offers temporary satisfaction before you've got to move on to the next thing. This world can never truly satisfy. Turn to the one who can. And this is how we receive grace. This is how we receive mercy. This is how we receive all of the things that we do not deserve. By turning from our wicked ways and placing our faith and trust in Jesus who lived obediently, as we saw last week, for us in our place. This is the message that we must believe ourselves, preach to ourselves daily, and take this message to the world. The, the world is lost. They are dying. They are searching for these things. This is the message they need to hear. They are looking for peace and fulfillment in things that are never going to give them lasting peace or lasting fulfillment. They know something is missing but they're using their cell phone as a flashlight when the sun is right outside. They need their focus changed. This is why the message doesn't change. This is why Jesus didn't have to come up with some new flowery message because it's the same message that's been preached forever. Turn to the Lord. Turn away. Repent. From that time, Jesus preached one single message. Repent. Turn to Jesus, this reminds me of an old hymn that we're going to be singing here in actually just a couple of minutes. But before we sing it, I want to read the words to you. It says, the chorus says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. 
This is what we must remind ourselves of daily. We must tell the world, turn to Jesus. He is the true light. If you will but turn to Jesus, the beauty and the majesty of him will make all of these other things seem like mere trifles. They will grow dim and you will desire him above all things. Repent for the king is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that your message does not change, um, that you have been telling us from the beginning of time that you are a God of grace. Yes, you are a God of wrath. Yes, you are a God of justice. You have to be or you cease to be God. But in the midst of all of that, you offer us grace and you offer us a way of receiving that grace And we thank you for Jesus as being that way. We thank you that he lived obediently in our place, that he died the death that we deserved, and that all we have to do is place our trust and faith in him to receive the grace that you have already promised, that you have already delivered. And I just pray that if there is anyone in here that has not truly repented of their sin, that you would convict them, that you would prick their heart so that they would know that they are a sinner but then you would bring a smile to their face because they would know that all they have to do is turn to you and turn from their evil and wicked ways and that you will show them grace. You will show them mercy, not because of their, their actions or earning it, but because of you, because of who you are and that you sent your son Jesus to do it for us. Pray that this message was heard loud and clear by the one speaking it this morning. Tomorrow when I try to be good for goodness sake, when I try to impress you with my actions or do the right thing because I think that you're going to be amazed, oh, Justin's doing great tomorrow or today. I pray that I remember this. I pray that it's my good deeds would seem like filthy rags when I look to you, the true source of light. I pray that I would remind myself that I, I need to repent and turn to you, not fight harder, show more willpower, but that I would turn from my evil ways because you look so glorious. We love you, Jesus, and may we truly turn to you this morning. May we truly turn our eyes to you as we are getting ready to sing. We love you, Lord, and we thank you so much that this has been the message from the first pages of the Bible to the end. And I just pray that we would put ourselves under the faucet of your grace and that we would take this message to a lost and dying world. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please stand as we worship.